Okay, ladies, good morning. We are two minutes over, and I need every minute I've got today. So let me pray, and I will get us started so we can look at all that God has for us. Father, I just thank you. You are awesome and holy, beautiful in splendor. And today, I just ask that you help us to see you in all of your glory. Um, Give us a vision for what this has to do with us and help us um, then to live that out. We give this time and our morning to you in your name. Amen. Okay, and I'm loud, so you might bring me down or I feel myself echoing in my ears. So um, I am, uh, you've heard of PK. We all know what that is, right? What is a PK? Yeah, a preacher's kid. Well, I'm a BK. Go ahead. What is that? A beaver's kid. Well, my maiden name was Beaver, but I don't tell that to very many people. That's our little secret. That's true. And there's a lot that can be said about that. Trust me. I've heard it all. I was a builder's kid. My daddy was a builder a developer, a contractor. So for us, what that meant at my house is that there was always a pickup truck in the driveway. You could find a retractable tape measure wherever you went, and then these lay around everywhere. It's a big old set of blueprints. You found these laying everywhere. I can remember nights and nights that I would um, come into the kitchen, and my dad would be sitting with plans, blueprint plans strewn all over the table, big legal pad, and he would be calculating and figuring because he was costing out a job. And so he was figuring it all out. And that's what he spent the time doing. It was a very visual picture. So I love, it's just amazing how intuitive Nika is. I I just I didn't know she knew these things. It's amazing. And so after complaining me last fall about the the ha-ha, ho-hum lessons I get to teach, then this semester I've gotten to teach Ten Commandments and now the Tabernacle. But you're saying, ho-hum, it bored me to death. I know. I know what you're thinking. And you're thinking that, but I I was really excited because I'm a builder's kid. And so I don't know if you've looked at blueprints and uh, try to envision what the finished product looks like. And I have many times, and I'm just going to tell you now, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard to look at a two-dimensional piece of paper and see dimension and form and function and shape. And what I'm, I'm really going to say is it, it takes a special kind of person to be able to do it. And most of us in this room, well, we just aren't those kind of girls, if you know what I mean. No, we see things two-dimensionally. So as you read through all of the detail and tedium in Exodus 25, 26, and 27, I know, I'm pretty sure some of you were like, I'm bored, Um, guts going on and on, like I don't care. Um, I'm sure you were there, but it does matter. And I loved that we got to really ruminate on what Judy said last week, that the devil we say is in the details, but that's not true. God is in the details. And if ever you were going to see that, you see that here and now in these three chapters. And so I read it and I try to read everything in one sitting and then sit back and say, all right, what is this about? What's going on here? And what's going on is that God's going to build a house. 
again, I'm a builder's kid, so that's what I see. And immediately, in my head, a great old Crosby Steals, Crosby Steals and Nash song began to run through my head. Let's listen. A house is a very, very, very fine house With two cats in the yard Life used to be so hard Now everything is easy because of you well, I'm telling you, let's just change our house, which obviously this was about a couple, this song, to my house. And presto, we have God in his house, and it is a very, very fine house he's going to tell us about. So I'm so excited um, to really try to bring this to life for you today. That said, let me say this also. Books, volumes have been written about all that we read here. There is so much symbolism in everything that's done because God does everything with a purpose and a plan. This, what we're going to see and what the Israelites will build, is just, it's just a shadow of the real thing. It's a shadow of what is to come. And so I'm going to try to give you some things you can hang on to. And for those of you spatially challenged, I'm going to try to make it come to life for you um, off the page, off of that two dimension. But um, I can't, I can't possibly cover it all. We're not going to in this time. So I'm going to hit the highs of what these items are and what they represent. So as you walk out, hopefully you'll have a picture in your mind that will be more than just what is written on the two-dimensional piece of paper. So why did God ask the Israelites to build a tabernacle? What was the purpose? Well, we know, and your lesson talked about it, the purpose... the purpose was because God wanted to give a physical representation. He wanted to come and dwell with his people, tabernacle, live with you. And they needed something physical to see because you see, they came out of Egypt where they had lived and there were physical demonstrations everywhere. I've told you I've been to Egypt. The temples they built and the the things that they saw were huge, huge carvings, um, statues that were the size is mammoth. And so they know God's there. They see him in the pillar and in the fire by night, but like, where is he? I like, I like, uh, they needed that. And so that's, that's why God was doing, he wanted to give them a physical demonstration. But again, this physical demonstration is just a shadow of what was to come. He ultimately dwelt with us. How? in the person of Jesus Christ. And we see that in the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, meaning Christ, and the Word was with us, and the Word became flesh, Jesus Christ, and the Word dwelt among us. And so the bottom line today is I hope you walk away knowing that God is the original builder. He's the ultimate designer, and he's got a plan, and he is... His plan is full, full of details. So let's look at that. Um, Now, when you and I, I'm going to use this building analogy and us, how we would build a house or do a remodel, whichever you want to talk about. And I'm going to use that and carry that through. Now, when we get ready to build a house, we've got to do three things, all of us, or 
or, or take on a project. Number one, we have to commit to a plan because uh, many hands will be involved. Even if you're just doing a little remodel in your house, there's a lot of different people that are going to work on it. So you've got to commit to the plan. And, and it's got to stay the same because lots of different people... Uh, work together to bring it about. You then have to coordinate what goes on the inside. Again, you've got sheetrockers, you've got masons, you've got woodworkers, you've got designers, you've got the painters, you've got... So a lot of coordination has to go on. And then ultimately, you have to complete the entire thing by looking to the outside and what's going on there. So that's what we're going to look at here. First, commit to the plan. In this case, what we're looking at is God's plan, his design for his house. So plans matter. When you're building a house, you can find stock plans on the internet. You could hire an architect to design you your own custom home. You could go that route. But regardless, you've got to make a commitment. At some point, the drawing quits, and we quit having these little boxes. We quit it, and we say, this is what we're doing. All right, enough said. And then we print 50 copies so that we don't lose them. That's what we do when we build, and that's what God did. He lays out a minutia of detail. I know, I know you got bogged down in it. I got bogged down in it. But we need it to understand because he's inviting the Hebrews into the building process. And he does that first by doing what? He asks them to bring some stuff. That's what he does. He says, give from your heart whatever you've got. And I love that your lesson asks you, where did they get that stuff? And you had to go back and remember, for those of you that studied Genesis with us last year, we know, uh, right, up, right up to this year, we know that as they, as they were getting ready to live, as they had been enslaved for 400 years, as they walked out of Egypt, they asked for, and God gave favor to them, they asked for things from their Egyptian friends. Now, just stop for a moment. Linda's my friend. Let's say I want to give Linda a gift, this, the gift of this plan. And so, Linda, I give you, this is really special. It's a wonderful house. I hope you build it and great. And I give Linda the plan. Linda sits down. Linda has something that I have given her. Over time, as Linda has this precious thing, it's, it's really precious. I know she loves plans too, so it is precious. What happens when we've been given a gift? What happens to that precious thing we've been given? My precious. Ooh, my pre- yes, just like Gollum in Lord of the Rings. Oh, my precious. It becomes mine. I start hanging on to it, don't I? I mean, they gave me the gold. It's my gold. Oh, they gave me that yarn. That was my bronze. It was my silver. They gave it to me, all those bangles. They're mine. I mean, that's what we do. And so God's saying now, you got a bunch of stuff and you got it because I gave you favor with them. And now I want you to give it back to me. The same is true of us. You work hard. I work hard. Our husbands work hard. We're given a check. Whose is that? It's mine. It's mine. It's all mine. That's what I want to say. And God is, he challenges the, the Israelites right here. Give from your heart. I love this. You know I do. Because a few weeks ago, I talked about the heart. We, we, we left here with hearts. It was a big deal, the heart thing. And what does God do? He starts with the Hebrews' hearts. He wants people whose hearts are his. The one, and, and he, so he doesn't say, it, it's not a forced thing. He doesn't say, you all have to give. He says, those whose hearts are willing should give. Isn't that 
beautiful? It's beautiful because God doesn't make us do anything. He doesn't say, you all have to give it up. Give it up. Give it up what you got. I know you. Oh, Kristen, I saw what you got. Give it up. He doesn't say that. He says, those of you whose hearts are willing, join me in what we're about to do. And so I think that's beautiful. He's a gentleman. Always, always a gentleman. Now, did God need these people to be involved? No. Could he have... And there's the tabernacle right in the middle of the wilderness. Yeah, he could have, but he doesn't do that. This is driving me crazy, y'all. Sorry. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, join me. I want you to be part of the project. And he does the same thing today. He wants us. um, He gives us opportunities at every turn to be involved with his work here and now. That might be building buildings. It might be ministering abroad. It might be ministering to friends and family in your own circle. Whatever it is, he invites you. Join me because I'm doing something here. Now, I know we got some designers in the house, interior designers at that. Um, I know Valerie for sure is in here and some of the rest of you. And I know you love this stuff and you love interiors because they matter. Well, God shows us that the things inside the house, thank you, that the, the, the things inside the house really matter to us. And so he shows us these first and foremost. Sorry while I get fixed up because it was driving me crazy. He shows us these first and and he says, I want you to see these pieces of furnishing because they're very important to me. Now, again, the whole time I read this, I kept saying, okay, well, so how's that like me? Well, so I've built a house and you know what? From my old house, I had things that were precious to me, like my grandmother's sideboard. Like I want that. That's going to go in my next house. I don't care. We're going to build the room around it. I want that piece of furniture. It's precious. To me, it has meaning and purpose. That's what God's doing. He's saying, I'm going to tell you what the furniture is. We're going to talk about that first. And it's precious to me. It has deep, symbolic meaning. Everything in this does. And so he shows us three pieces of furniture. And let's talk about that. As he gets ready to describe them, he says, over and over, make it exactly according to the plan. Three times he says this. Now, he gives measurements in cubics, and that's about 18 inches. We're going to convert it to feet so you and I can understand what we're talking about. But he says three times, see that they, the Israelites, make everything after the pattern. Again, a plan is important. You have to do that. And so, circle it in your Bible. In 25.9, circle those words. Make See that they make everything after the pattern or the plan given. It's in verse 2540. So 259, 2540, and 2630. And what do we know when God repeats something? What does that mean for us? Listen up, pay attention. This is important. Why? What's the message? What is he conveying there? I think he's saying, don't be tempted. Don't be tempted to cut corners or shortchange the process. I mean, I built my kitchen and I, I'm, I, here's my kitchen island. I don't measure down like uh, 25, 26. It doesn't matter. I mean, it does matter because a wooden cabinet goes below. It matters if it's 25 or 26 because then I'm going to go to some yard and ask for a piece of granite to be cut and I don't go, ah, you know, that's about 25, 26, whatever, whatever it takes. I mean, 210, 220, whatever it takes. We don't say that. It matters, all right? So it matters. Exacting matters. And you know what? If we wouldn't do that, 
in building a little house for humans, then why, why would we say it doesn't matter with our spiritual lives, the bigger, better thing that God is building? He's laid out plans, exact plans for your life and for mine. And they're all found in his word. But aren't we tempted every single stinking day to cut the corner? I'm gonna just round it a little bit here, a little bit there. And before we know it, we are lukewarm. So he made sure, Israel knows this, just like he wants you and I to know that it matters, all right? So let's look at the three pieces of furniture inside the tabernacle. There's the Ark of the Covenant. You find this uh, in verses 10 to 22. This is where his glory dwells. Many have said it is his throne. It's the most important item in the tabernacle, but it's basically a box. It's a box that's three and three-fourths feet long by two and a fourth feet wide and two and a fourth feet high. It looks like this. Voila, your wardrobe box. It is very close, not exact, so don't get your tape measure out and come up here. But there you go. And I even went into my backyard and spray painted that sucker gold. And I'm telling you, covered over the black writing on the outside that says this end up. You don't even know which end goes up. So I love that. There you go. There is the ark. It is a box. And upon this box goes a lid. I wasn't that crafty, sorry. But you get the idea of scale. It's important because when you read of what goes inside, I mean, I'm thinking like a box. No, it's a box this size, very close to this size. Thank you, Carol Merrill, Vanna Whites. Thank you so much. It's made of acacia wood. Why? Because it was the plentiful wood in the area. It was the most durable for the harsh conditions, desert-like conditions. And what else do we think of when we think of wood? I mean, come on. What else is made of wood? A cross that led to salvation for you and me. A cross where Jesus sacrificed his life. Um, I think of a box that floated on water. Those of you that were with us in Genesis, Noah, Noah, we know that that ark was made of wood which symbolized salvation for the people and the animals within. Do you see how God is so complete in using things? So there we are. It Where does the wood come from? A tree that grows where? On the earth? So it signifies humanity. And we know that Jesus was God and was man. And here we see this perfectly because we're gonna overlay the whole thing with gold, not cheesy old spray paint, but the real thing, the real thing completely overlaid. Why? Gold to be used in in its finest must be purified. It's gotta go through the fire and then it does become pure gold. We we like that, ladies. We're usually wearing it. I want the pure gold. I want I don't want the 14 karat, I want the 24 or whatever it goes to. I don't even know because I don't have any of it. But by golly, we want it because it's pure and it's it signifies deity. It signifies wealth. It's the only item, this box, that would sit in the holy of holies, the most holy place. This is where God would come down and he is gonna meet with Moses and then Aaron. And from that point on forever, the high priestly, the the lineage from Aaron of the high priest, one man, One place, all right? And so that's what's gonna happen. He will meet with them, where? Where does he do this? Between the cherubim and 
the angels are there for protection and covering. So he meets between that on the mercy seat, which again is just a lid. It was a lid that then had the, the angels coming up on it. And I actually, do we have some photos? Um, I've been to Israel and actually there's a phenomenal, and this looks really cheesy, I'm sorry, but it was so cool when you're there in person. But I've been there and out in the desert, they made a replica of the, the tabernacle. And what stunned me of the whole thing is how small it is. Um, when, I st- when you step inside the tent of meeting, it's like, it's, it's, it feels tiny and, and just all closed in. And there you see the ark. And so you see the cherubim, not exactly like you had pictured them, was it? I know it's not. But there they are with their wings over. And you see the lid is the thing that's actually inlaid and, and um, is coffered, so to speak, that goes around the top. All right, so there we have it. That's great. <clears throat> so he did it on this box. That's where he did it. God, God met with them uh, there between the cherubim on the seat of mercy, atonement cover, it is called also, or the mercy seat. Now, why? What happens there? Blood. Blood was sprinkled there. The blood of the sacrifice. This happened only one day per year. It's called the day of atonement. That's why we get atoning cover. And all that means is a covering for the sin of the people. It would cover the sin of the high priest and the people that he represented. This happens one day a year. Inside, you read in your lesson, um, here in Exodus 25, we're told that the stone tablets go where the law had been written. But later you read on, and we're going to find this actually later. You don't have to go all the way to Hebrews, but Hebrews gave it to you. Two other items will ultimately be placed in that box, the manna and Aaron's rod that had the blossom, the, the olive blossom there. All right, so what, why that? Why did he put those in there? Well, I think it's easy to figure out why the law was in there. That, that's obviously very important, but it's interesting that all three of those things, the stone tablets, Aaron's rod, and the manna, are all also very closely associated to rebellion on Israel's part. You see, they're we haven't gotten there yet, but um, newsflash, they're going to rebel. Moses is going to go up into the cloud, and he's going to be up there for 40 days getting those stone tablets, and the people have a party down, down at the bottom. And so we haven't even gotten there, but they are going to rebel big time. What about with Aaron's rod? Where else? Well, what about the sons of Korah? There was a big old rebellion there, and, and the rod gave protection. We studied all that. And then manna, we've already studied that. Um, why did God give them manna in the first place? What were the Israelites doing? Poor me. I got nothing to eat. Grumbling and complaining. And so there we are again. Ah, a picture of what? That in all those things, God forgave them of their sin and showed them mercy, just like he does for you and I. These are reminders. They're reminders, yes, of God's provision, but of God's provision of mercy when I sin. And all I've got to do is come Come to him with my sin and have the proper blood covering and he will show me that mercy. And that takes us to the showbread. This was the table of showbread, also made of wood, acacia, also covered in gold. It held the 12 loaves of bread on two plates. So did we, could you see that in one of those pictures? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's a table and it has two golden plates with the, with the 12 pieces, six and six pieces are there. Now what, what's that? Obviously, we know that there are 12 tribes in Israel. So it 
reminds them, points to the 12 tribes, reminds them that they are all constantly in God's presence. He sees everything they say and do. It's a reminder. It is a reminder to his provision that he will feed his people. Again, harkens back to what goes inside here. We know he does this. He feeds people. In turn, we should do what? We should feed on his word and his truth. And then ultimately, it points us to Christ. And I love that Christ was born in the oh, little town of Bethlehem. Do you know what the town of Bethlehem, do you know what that name means? It means house of bread, house of bread. And what does Jesus say in his word? I am the bread of life. And if you eat of me, you will, you will not go hungry again. And so beautiful, beautiful pictures he gives us. And then the golden lampstand. This really is a menorah, ladies. Just basically, if you're confused, it's a menorah. That's what it is. It's probably the most beautiful piece in the entire place. Hammered from one solid piece of 75, 74, 75 pounds of solid gold. Wow. The seven branches would, of course, we know seven is God's number of completion, but it also points to local churches that cast God's light in a dark world. Sound familiar? The lampstand, of course, points to Jesus Christ, who said he was the light of the world. And at his death, what happened? He too was beaten or hammered as the lampstand was. Beautiful illustration. Now I gotta tell you as I thought of all this, like what's the best example? Because if we back up again, all this happened because the Hebrew people came and gave willingly from a willing heart to God so that he could do something wonderful. And I thought, what's the best example in my life that I've seen of that? And I'm telling you, it happened right here in the body of Watermark. I'm gonna take you back to our very, very early days. To when we purchased the property on, on which you are sitting right now, this building. The year was 2003. Mm, you know, we had about 1,000 people attending, maybe 800 that really considered themselves members and with us. The elders had looked for months for property. We had gone inside some of the most God-forsaken places and said, this could be it, this could be it, but this property became available. All right, little kick, though. The sellers wanted um, the money in cash and, oh, Oh, and, and they wanted it in one month. So we held, held the land. You put money down that says, I'm going I'm, I'm gonna to do that. We're going to pray and we're going to process. And then the elders came before the people and they just said, here's the deal. This is what we think. This is, this is our forever home. Ooh, I shouldn't say those words. We think this is a great home for us for now. Um, this will be a great place. It's got plenty of land. We can grow. It's got a building. We had the tower at the time. And we think this is what we should do. And it's going to cost us $8 million from about 800 people in a month. Cash. That's what we need. That's what we said. We had $2 million already that had been given to the building. So really, we essentially need $6 million. So the elders ran to Exodus 35, 36, and asked for people whose hearts were his, pray, process, join us. That's all we're going to say. And so that's what they did. And we're not, this is not pledges. We're not asking you to tell us you're going to cash in your inheritance or your stocks or your bonds. No, no, we need your money in an envelope. And so that's what we need. So we gave everybody an envelope, said we're going to open it a month at the end of the month. And if all the money's there, then we'll go forward and buy it. And we'll cash your check or take your money, your hard cold cash. And if it's not there, everybody wrote their name on the envelope and we'll give you your money back. That's the way it worked. A month came, 
We had prayed, 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 and had absolutely no idea what God would do. I cannot tell you the joy of opening those envelopes and counting six million, over six million dollars, over six million dollars in one month. Does God do miracles? Does he know exactly what you need in your life? He does. And he is longing to provide it to you if you've got a heart that's his. That's really the message here. And so are you a cheerful giver? Are you willingly offering him your time, your talent, and your treasure? Um, Your attitude in giving the gift matters far more than the gift, because guess what? (laughs) That stuff you've got, it's God's anyway. He gave it to you, to steward. It's already his. But your attitude in making the offering matters because it reflects your heart. And now we're back to that thing again. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up treasure in heaven where neither moth nor nor rust destroys and thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, what? There your what? Your heart will be. And that takes us to coordinating what's on the inside. So we know the furniture and, you know, we're building our dream home and I I want these pieces of furniture to go in it. Now, I might look at other furniture that goes in it, but then there's another thing interior designers begin to do. They say, oh, well, the furniture, that's just one piece of the design. I mean, it's kind of the, the, the hard piece, the cold piece, but we need some soft pieces. We got to warm it up. And what do they warm it up with? But curtains and draperies, that's what they do. We need fabrics and you need this color and, and we need this texture on the sofa. And, that, that's, and that's what God does. He, he knew this. And so he wants to employ that design technique. So he's going to coordinate it by using the best of materials and people to do so. When building, you want a skilled contractor so that you get a great finished product at the end. God knew this. So he asked for quality elements to be given to craft his home. And then he asked for the best skilled workers. And guess where they had just come from? The sweatshops of Egypt. You're right. They were building the temples, the, the, all that they were crafting these things. They were skilled artisans in Egypt. They had, God had already prepared. They had what it took to do under, under compulsion then. And now he's asking them, use your gift. You've been given it. And so that's what they do. So three soft items. We're going to need skills ranging from woodwork and metalwork to tanning and and tapestry. That's what we need and tailors. So we got the curtains and the coverings. They're all made of linen. God builds beauty into the walls and the ceiling. And these these are gonna be seen only by the priests, the ministering priests who come in. They're seen through vibrant blue, purple, and scarlet colors. And we've got some pictures of that, um, I think, the inside. So you see that on the walls. The ceilings were big swaths of color. We can't see that, but there was more detail here, and we know they actually do some other things as well. Now, I brought an example for you. What, what would that look like for us? What are we talking about? Well, go to Oaxaca, Mexico, and you will find tapestries like this that are hand done by women. Um, don't get confused because they did cherubim, but you see some birds in here, and look at the colors. This is all handmade, embroidered tapestry. So an example of what God was doing and asking um, these women to do. Now, artistic beauty and color glorifies God. It, it, he, he, it brings glory to him and points to him because he's the creator of it all anyway. 
So he has four layers or blankets, curtains, um, that cover the tent. There's the interior walls, and you see them here, colored by the beautiful um, curtains that are embroidered. Then there's the layer above that of goat's hair, woven goat's hair canvas. I can't even imagine. The next blanket was tanned ram skins. And when I think of ram, I I think more of like an antelope type thing. But there are commentators or or scholars who actually say that... uh, No, I'm sorry. Let me just stop there. Yes, so tanned ram skins. Um, And these are dyed red. What does red remind you of? Blood that covers over what what is inside. And then the outer service. Okay, here. Different translations are going to call it different things. But this is what I found most interesting. There are scholars who say that outermost skin... Um, is actually sea cow, sea hides, all right? And so I looked. I'm like, all right, well, let's see if that really, is that true? Do they really? And to this day, there are two types of um, herbivores that live in, in waters, and there's the manatee in Florida, and I don't remember how to um, pronounce it, the dong-dong or dang-dang or blah-blah-blah, I don't know, whatever it is, but it's something that looks like a manatee that lives in the Sinai Peninsula and the Red Sea. And so there we go that they would have that. Now, what does that do? What does the animal of a, the, the hide of a water animal, what does that provide for you? Protection. What kind of protection from what? Water. <laughs> water. This is waterproofing, ladies. This is original waterproofing. Like, what? Are you kidding me? Um, there, that is brilliant. Waterproofing. Then there's the tent of meeting. Now, this was located within the courtyard. And I, some of us, again, you're two-dimensional gals. I know you're not those kind of gals, but I'm going to try to make you those kind of gals. We want to talk about the courtyard. It's, I'm not talking about it yet, but the courtyard was the outer fence It's the landscape. I'll talk about it in a minute. That courtyard was 150 feet long by 70 feet wide. Within that, in the very center, stood the tent of meeting. And so I've got some lovely friends that are going to help me, and I want them to demonstrate this now. This um, entire tent of meeting was 45 feet long. So where are my helpers? All right, so it is a 45-foot-long tent of meeting. It is 15 feet wide. So there should be four of you, and if you will stand and hold those up for me now. Perfect. Okay? So, yeah, um, Brittany, take the other. Is there, is, yeah, there we go. So you see the box. And if you, okay, yeah, if you pick it up, it should make, you, you girls, there's another, isn't there a 40, another 45? There's no 45? Okay. All right, well, you get it. It makes a big rectangle. This is the size and scope of the tent of meeting. Okay? Now, the tent of meeting was divided into two parts. The two parts were the holy place where the priests ministered, and that was 30 feet long. So they're going to show you what that was. Okay, this is the outer place, all right? There we go, a nice, pretty rectangle. Now that, in front of that, was the most holy place, the holy of holies. It was 15 feet long by 15 feet wide, which means, ladies, it makes one big what? Square box. There you go. And they're going to show you that. And when you get inside of it, it's, it's um, come, yeah, it should come a little bit more because the black, I can see the black. It's tinier than that. Come, 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 come. Keep coming to the black. Okay, wait a minute. Pardon us for just a second. Go all the way to the black. To the second black. Oh, well, anyway, okay. 
Yeah, there we go. We had it marked off into thirds because it's really, that's, we got a lot of three things going. There we go. That's it. Okay, really, it's, it's tiny. 15 feet is, by 15 feet is not that big. And when I went to Israel and you walk in with those curtains and they're dark, okay, you designers, when you've got dark scarlet, dark blue, when you've got those colors in a small space, what does it do? makes it smaller or feel smaller. It brings it all in. And so there the, the structure is, and you see how the hides, the four layers are wrapped over it. Now, right in front of it is the, um, yeah, right in front of it is the altar. Do you see the four horns on the corner of the altar with red tip? That's where the blood's going to be offered. I'm not there yet, but we're going to get back to it. So stop right there. And then I'm going to have you use the other picture in a minute. So there we go. You guys can sit down. Thank you. So I wanted to give you an idea of scope and size of what we're talking about. And I'm sorry, this is going to go a little bit longer. Then you have the veils inside. There's the inner, inner veil, a stunning curtain. It's hand embroidered with the cherubim in the colors we discussed. Only the high priest went into this and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. We've talked about it. Um, he he saw the cherubim from the inside as he moved out. And so only the one who went into the Holy of Holies could see that at that point. What does this point us to? And I love that you read Hebrews 10. It teaches that the veil represents Christ's body given on the cross. The curtain, there's this, this veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. When the temple later is built into a structure run all the way up to Roman time. That was what we called Herod's temple. And scholars will tell you that the veil that hung in that temple was six inches thick. It is written and said that that veil could not be pulled, torn apart by a team of horses. And yet, what happened? On the day of Christ's death, as he took his last breath from top to bottom, that it's like a piece of paper. It was shredded into. Why? To make access. That access was no longer blocked, but it was thrown wide open that you and I can go boldly before his throne because of what God's done. And then there's an outer veil that hangs on five pillars. Quality people, quality things matter when you're constructing things. Um, because my daddy was a builder, my jobs were all in the building yard. And actually, uh, my first home that I ever built was during my college years. My dad wanted me to get general contracting experience. And so we went to the bank. We signed, he co-signed a loan for me, a construction loan. And I began constructing my first home, 1,500 square feet, that I was going to sell when I finished. And I got to get bids. I knew all these people because I worked with them. We worked with them. I had worked in my dad's office since before I was old enough to really be working. So I knew all these people. So the bookkeeper, her husband was a part-time plumber. And guess what? He gave me the cheapest bid. I'm like, well, I'm going to use him. I know him anyway, really well. And I used him. Mistake. I should have never done that. He was her husband, but he was a lousy plumber. And I paid a lot more to fix what he did wrong, the cheapest price. Cheaper is not always better than had I have paid the money to get the right and the best quality to begin with. And so we're commanded as well to give God our best not our leftovers, not the cheapest, not the, not the least of. And, and that's my question. Do you give God your best? And if not, why not? 
Ask him today to change your heart and help you honor him with the best that you've got. And I love Colossians. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Jesus, giving thanks to him through the Father. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, knowing that the Lord will receive the reward of inheritance. It's Jesus Christ that you serve. And that takes us to the last thing. You better complete what's on the outside because no house is complete without a great landscape plan, without a fence to mark our property lines, etc. And that's what we've got. You've got the bronze altar, which was pictured a moment ago. I'm not going to go back to it. That's where the sacrifices took place in the courtyard, just inside the entrance. It has the four horns on each corner. Interesting thing. This courtyard, again, was about the size of the room we're sitting in. This room is 148 feet long. The courtyard of the tabernacle was 150. So just add a couple, just blow the box out a couple. It was 75 feet wide. This room from where I am standing to the back of the room is 80. So cut it off about where Nika is. And um, right there in the back, in, in the back technical booth. And this would be the courtyard where the beautiful linen fences, white all the way around it. And I think we have a picture somewhere of that. Um, yes, look at that. Isn't it gorgeous? And you see there that gate that's beautifully woven. Guess what? There was one way in and there was one altar on which to make the sacrifices. Again, sound familiar? Just like there's only one way of salvation for sinners through one person. When the tabernacle was dedicated, God lit that fire and the priest kept it burning. And the altar points us to Christ's death, this bronze altar to Christ's death on the cross. He went through the fire of judgment and gave himself, gave himself freely as a sacrifice for your sin and for mine. And then there's the court. Again, that's those beautiful linen walls on the outside. Um, Again, it was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. It had three parts. We've already talked about them. There's the courtyard outside where the animals and the priests and the people could go to take their sacrifice. Then there's the tent of meeting, which came in that our lovely lady showed you in the middle that had two parts, three in total. Again, three in one. Interesting. Sounds like something else we all know and love. And then there was the oil for the lamp to tie it all up. It points us to the Holy Spirit. He is with us, inside of us, continually anointing and directing us. His light never goes out because he lives in you if you have accepted this gift of the sacrifice that Christ gave for us. Then his spirit lives in you. It came in you the moment, at the moment of your salvation and he never leaves you. Yeah, the tabernacle mattered, but did you know that... Today, the Lord has an even more beautiful dwelling place than any tabernacle, temple, or cathedral that's ever been built. And that temple is you. You, yes, you, ladies, you are the one in whom the Spirit of the Almighty dwells if you believe that Jesus was the Son of God who gave his life for you and me. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Oh, dear ones, yes. God has a plan. He is the original designer, the best builder. He's got a plan for you and for me. And that plan gives us a future and a hope. Let's pray. Father, help us today to remember all day we are that temple. This is beautiful. And it points us to to heaven and to you and all the symbolism, but you call us your temple. We are beautiful in your sight. When we stand 
with your son as our atoning cover. And so help us to glorify him in all we say and do today. In your name, amen.